tell you don't have to make a lot of money to, to be to be sufficient and taking care of yourself. You just gotta learn how to save your money. You gotta learn how to be very aware of what you spend and which and that's kind of I think like today, like now that I'm you know divorced, you know I just bought a home, which I told you about, right, Wes? So now I met with the bank yesterday about about asking for a business line of credit. Do I need the capital? No, I've got capital in bank accounts and we went into money market accounts, started investing, and I have cash in my home and my other properties getting ready to sell and all that. But like my dad always taught me, right? If you need money, Marcus, ask for it when you don't need it. Because if you need it, they probably aren't going to give it to you. <laughs> Welcome to Analog Advisor, a podcast about the way money shapes our lives, relationships, and society. Join us as we explore the nuances of living an analog life in an ever more digital world. Welcome back to The Analog Advisor. I'm your host, Wes Brown. And today we're continuing our conversation with Marcus Ogden. From the gridiron of the NFL to corporate boardrooms and ultimately bankruptcy courtrooms, Marcus has had a remarkable journey. And now he's on a mission to leave a legacy. Today, he shares how he overcame anger issues when he was growing up, the impact of the values instilled in him by his grandparents around education and family and hard work, and why therapy was a game changer. As we explore the relationships between money, success, and wellness, Marcus's story is full of insight and inspiration. And as always, this was a conversation I truly enjoyed, and I hope you will as well. So let's dive in. Marcus, good to be with you again. Good to see you. How are you doing, Wes? Thanks for having me back, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Man, this feels like a treat because I get to, uh, I'm getting I'm getting my Marcus fix again. This is like three times in less than 30 days. It's great. I love it. Um, I appreciate you fitting me in because I know, I know you get a busy travel schedule and uh, have been doing some exciting things, building a house and things like that. So thanks for making some more time for me uh, today. Um, you know, I... I was, as I was mentioning earlier, I was reflecting back on our last conversation and, um, and loved the high points that you hit just in terms of, you know, your career and the, and the, the, uh, the, the story that you have that got you to where you are today. If it's okay, I'd love to just, I'd love to back up and lift the veil a little bit and hear a little bit more behind that story. And that's not to say that that's not authentic or whatever, but I just love to hear the details and, and let me, let me restate what I said earlier, which is, you know, we work with a lot of successful people just by nature of the business that we're in. Um, the, the through line in every one of those situations and for every one of those relationships is that that success um, oftentimes came on the heels of failure, maybe multiple failures. Um, and it was, a, it was a recentering on early values and principles instilled when they were a kid as you said, some, some part of finding your why to, to figure out, to find your who. Um, and, and so I'd love to hear that from you a little bit more. And if you wouldn't mind, go back a little bit further. Just tell me a little bit about who Marcus was growing up before football even. I know you started playing football in high school, but what was family life like? What were the principles and values instilled in you earlier that maybe later you circled back to um, with the success that you found? Um, does that make sense? Yes. No, it does. So yeah, I was born in Washington, D.C., uh, my brother Jonathan and I were raised by a single dad when our parents divorced when I was eight. Uh, really hard times trying to adjust, not having your mom in the house. Um, you know, a lot of feelings of depression, uh, you know, you know, uh, anxiety, um, isolation. 
Um, you know, disconnectivity, you know, you don't have that individual who is your mother that's supposed to be there for you, which is really, really hard. Uh, dealt with a lot of just, from what I re- recall, what my dad told me, I, I really was an angry child a lot of times between the age of eight to like maybe 12 uh, or 13. I started, I started playing football at 13 in high school. So, you know, those, that age of eight to 13, that five-year stretch was hard. I mean, there was a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, a lot of, you know, feeling that you weren't good enough, feeling that, you know, you weren't going to be, you know, obviously your mom left, like, oh, why, why did she leave? What, was it me? Was it, what did I do? What could I have done better? You know, and I was young. And so it's interesting. I'm actually getting uh, divorced my, myself and my daughter's, one of my daughters is eight. My stepdaughter's 19, but my our birth daughter's eight. So it's really interesting how that came about. Uh, but again, it was something I was planning on. But again, you know, as a young child, I do remember having a lot of anger issues, a lot of resentment issues. Uh, started going to therapy. I was probably about eight or nine. Uh, and then I remember uh, using that fuel of anger in football, which helped me out a lot. And then even when I got to college, uh, I still struggled a lot with anger issues. I, was, I had to go to anger management. My it's probably my red shirt sophomore year of college. I was forced to go see a therapist because uh, I had gotten into a fight with my office of coordinator. Because uh, I just I didn't really do well with authority uh, at certain times in my life when I was younger, even in college, because of all things I had dealt with with my parents divorcing. That probably even I was in therapy. I didn't really know how to have those difficult those difficult conversations with you know my therapist, things of that nature at such a young age. And I'm in therapy today, and I can understand how I still struggle as a child because I was able to not, I was not able to say things, understand things like I do now. So even though it was great for me, I wish I could have, you know, been in a better position to kind of share things I was feeling and understand why and where that came from. But hey, you know, that's life and, you know, you have to learn to do what you have to deal with. And, you know, it turned out all right. But yeah, that young childhood was really hard with, you know, growing up with uh, all guys in the house, no mom, you know, and being raised by a single dad. But again, as I always state, it turned out to be the best thing for us because our dad became our best friend and all that stuff. So there's a there's definitely some rainbows through the storm. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Let me, you're a, are, are you about my age? I'm 43. I'm 42. Okay, so we're about the same age. So it's pretty remarkable that you were in therapy at eight years old, you know, in the eighties, that seemed like that's, it, that wasn't what, that wasn't as uh, commonplace as it is today. Did, was that something your dad drove and did your dad and brother do oh, that also? Yeah. My dad drove it. I don't know about my brother. I know my dad did therapy. Uh, I know that. Uh, but yes, my dad really was into that, the driving force. And also my maternal grandparents, my maternal grandmother to be more exact, was big on it. And my maternal grandparents became closer to my dad than my mom, which is interesting because they were, because my mom was, you know, she, you know, my mom was their daughter, but my grandparents really sided with my dad because of us. And what that was like, I think my grandparents understood that if they were to see us and have that relationship, they were going to have to build, not build, they would have to continue to sustain and build that with my dad. And as a result of that, I feel that that's why my grandparents were so big in my life. You know, they were always around. They were from Washington, D.C. They didn't live that far. So I spent a lot of time with them. So our grandmother, who was a teacher by trade, 
was all about education. She was all about self-awareness. She was all about therapy. She was all about faith. So I really believe between my father and of course my grandmother, who my dad respected, loved, and listened to all the time, I believe those two were the big driving forces and factors to why I got into therapy at such a young age. Yeah. And did it help? I mean, you feel like it was... Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, for, I mean, it's, you know, it's, again, to a degree, it helped to the best that it could for the age I was at. Sure. And again, a lot of things that were going on, I didn't really understand why they were going on. Mm-hmm. But I learned how to do it with my emotions. I mean, I still got into trouble. I still had, you know, issues with fights and, and reprimand and things of that nature, which is... Unfortunately, I would say I won't say normal, but it's 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 not unusual when you have a child going through that sort of thing so early. So I was really trying to process that, but I can say that the therapy helped me to manage emotions better than if I didn't go into therapy. I would have probably been not probably I would have for sure been much worse off if I didn't go to therapy. You know, uh, at that time. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely, I mean, I think my, my experience with it came later in life as well. And in hindsight, you know, uh, there were probably times earlier in my life where I think we all would have, you know, I would have benefited from it. I'm sure that's true for all of us, especially in a circumstance like that. You know, you, um, you mentioned being angry and I was thinking about something you said in our first conversation where you said, you know, anger is the mask for fear, right? Anger is Mm -hmm. a superficial emotion. Oftentimes, you know, there's, there's deeper emotions underneath that. Just in a not to not to drill too deep here, but just I'm curious. You said you were angry from eight to thirteen. Mm-hmm. What? I mean, again, would you feel like that's consistent? You were afraid of was it the instability? Was there fear behind? Oh that? yeah, I was yeah. afraid of instability. I was afraid of not knowing what it was going to be like. I was afraid of you know. I mean, it's the unknown. Are your parents going to get back together? Are they going to stay divorced? You know, who? You, you know, where are you going to live? You know, your is your mom going to try to get you guys back? You know. Um, what is that like? You know, what is that like for us? You know, do we have to possibly move? Can we stay where we're at? I mean, you know, there's a lot of things going through your mind, especially at that age where you got to figure out, well, what does this look like and what's going to be? And so, yeah, definitely afraid of the unknown, the X factor or the variable factor, not knowing what was going to happen as a result of the divorce. I was definitely angry and fearful because of that reason, without a doubt. And that, but that anger stayed with you, you said, into, into college, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because, you know, I still didn't really deal with it. And then when I got to college and then I started seeing a therapist, I, was, I think I was, uh, so it was 2019. That was two, so I was 19. Yeah. It was much better then than I was, than being eight. So that, so actually her name was uh, Dr. Tina Russell. Um, you know, she was, well, she wasn't a doctor. She was actually up there. She was actually a grad student that was trying to become a doctor. So she wasn't there yet, but she was my therapist. So Tina Russell was really important and instrumental for me to help me in that regard. She was great. I mean, she did fantastic. Uh, she helped me to understand some things that I didn't know how to process. I didn't know how to deal with and leaving her and then going from there and then out of that program it helped me to kind of get much more stable. And after that, yeah, I never had any more like really anger issues, outbursts, anything like that. After I saw uh, Tina uh, at Howard as a, uh, again, as a redshirt sophomore football player. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, that's, that's so interesting. That's also like, you know, as a, as a guy, you know, 13 to, or eight, you know, even eight, even early teen, preteen years to early twenties, you're just, 
changing so much and you know, mm-hmm. it's normal to have aggression and anger things going on, even if, even if things are otherwise, uh, you know, stable. Um, so mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. You talked about your, your grandmother and this ties in with where you are today. And we'll come back to that in a minute, but you talked about your grandmother and, you know, the things that were important to her, the values and principles she instilled in you, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said education, faith, mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. What impact did that have on you? Do those and do those things are those things that you carry or have adopted yourself as well, even today? Oh yeah, I mean, without a doubt, my grandmother was the individual who helped me to understand how to build life, you know, in a positive manner going forward between faith and family, education over sports, you know, quality time, you know, uh, balance, you know, how to work hard, but how to do things. My grandmother worked hard her entire life, but she also liked to go to uh, to Atlantic City and go to casinos and have fun and <laughs> had her friends. And so she yeah. always had a really good work-life balance. My grandfather, yeah. same way. He worked all the time, but he also had a nice balance as well through volunteering for the Boys and Girls Club. He loved working on cars and automotive. He spent a lot of time with my who her, his next door neighbor. His name is Trevlin. Trevlin and his wife uh, Ave. Uh, I called her Anna Ave. Uncle Trevlin. Their daughter Gina is my like my sister today. She she used to babysit me when I was born. So Gina's parents and my grandparents were neighbors and best friends. So for me. I'm close to Gina today. We talk daily, um, you know, about what she's got going on, what I've got going on. Gina was a really, really big factor in helping me through the time when I was getting divorced last year, uh, mm-hmm. and moving out and having to go to an apartment and having to start over. I mean, she was a big, big positive factor in my life to help me move forward. And so I learned a lot of values from my grandparents, from her parents, again, about family, faith, hard work, balance, friendships, enjoying life, you know, and I mean, that was just the way it was. I mean, my grandmother was just that type of woman all the time. I mean, absolutely all the time. Yeah. It's amazing. That's pretty amazing. And what a gift to have her in your life. Um, you know, even as inspiration today, inspiration. Then, oh, absolutely. Inspiration. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cause you know, Margie Bratton Snead was always about her grand, her you know, her grandchildren, you know, her family, her siblings, uh, her husband, you know, I mean, her daughter. I mean, she was a total woman who gave and gave. So, I mean, that's just the way in which she was wired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were your grandparents? I'm curious. Like, sounds like they did pretty well. Or, or how did how how did they do financially? Were they? Sounds good like they quite, did a lot. Good question. No, no, they were smart with their money. So my grandmother was a teacher. Okay. My grandfather worked in boxing training and also he's a military veteran as well. So they weren't making a ton of money. No, but they owned their home. They were very smart and very fiscally sound with what they did. Uh, They didn't buy a lot of like crazy, expensive, lavish things. My grandparents were very very just basic and very just, you know, a matter of fact, very under the radar. They didn't need to have all the finance, this stuff, finance that. Now thinking back on it, growing up, the house was rather small. I mean, well, now today, say to right. that, growing up in that house then, it seemed bigger. 
Today, I realize how small it was, but that was the way the houses were back in the 1930s and 40s when they bought the house, so or 50s when they bought the house. So again, you know, for me, it was big to kind of learn from them and understand it wasn't all about how you make money. So you don't have to make a lot of money to, to be to be sufficient and taking care of yourself. You just got to learn how to save your money. You got to learn how to be very aware of what you spend and which and that's kind of I think like today like now that I'm you know divorced you know I just bought a home which I told you about right Wes so now I met with the bank yesterday about can, about asking for a business line of credit do I need the capital no I've got capital in bank accounts and we went into a money market account started investing and I have cash in my home and my other properties getting ready to sell and all that but like my dad always taught me right if you need money Marcus Ask for it when you don't need it. Because if you need it, they probably aren't going to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it's true. They're they're not banks aren't big on lending to people who are down on their luck, right? Correct. So, oh, no, oh no, I mean, I, I did my personal financial statement yesterday, going over cash in my accounts, uh, any anything in my home that I'm owed back and selling soon in my new home. What did I buy it for? What is it praised for? What did I gross last year? You know, any any expenses, you know, all that stuff. And when I look at the balance sheet, like, wow, I have way more assets than expenses. So, mm-hmm. and I've been and I've been banking at that bank since probably I'll say 2014, give or take. Okay. So, sure. I, and I've always had money with them, but again, I was never in a position <laughs> to get a lot of credit, which is crazy to think about. But now with the way I've been able to turn the business around and hire the right people, we have an amazing team and how we work well together. Now we're able to have the type of setup that we, that we want. Yeah. It sounds like you've got a good set of um, principles and a framework for making good decisions. Now, I, you know, going back to your grandparents and they had that as well, right? They made smart decisions. It sounds like living within their means. Uh, you know, so on and so forth. It, w- I'm curious uh, for you. You're mirroring mirroring some of what some of how you described your grandparents being today, and that's fantastic. What about the time in between? I mean, when you're when your dad was by himself, and then when you started having some success at you know in both the NFL and in construction. How did you manage that? Did you, I mean, did you hold some of the principles that your grandparents had, or? Or maybe, and maybe that your dad instilled in you also, or did you kind of abandon it? And is this kind of a newfound, or maybe a returning to, you know, some of those early principles? Good question. So basically, when I was drafted in the National Football League, I had learned from my brother, who was very fiscally savvy and sound, and my Mm. dad, who was very fiscally savvy and sound, how to manage and budget for myself. And so okay. I remember I created my my budget, kind of like a profit and loss statement that I created when I was drafted by the Jaguars, right? So I put myself, okay, how much did I make each week after tax for my check? It's around ten, eleven thousand dollars a week. This is back in two thousand three. So I made yep. forty grand a month, round number. My expenses were probably about with my with my apartment and my truck. I mean, I was probably spending about three grand a month in expenses. So I was Amazing. able to profit and, and positive cash flow, $37,000. So it's interesting. I did a CNN money article probably about, I want to say probably about maybe, shoot, man, 
like seven years ago, give or take, and I was able to find my old notebook from 2003 with the Jaguars that had my income, my assets, my profit, you know, my positive cash flow. And I took that money and I put it into the bank or I put it into like an investment account or something of that nature. So I was always, always aware of how to not just make money, but keep money. It's interesting now that I'm single after uh, being married for seven years, I was about left my ex for 10. I am now getting back to those principles where I have a fractional CFO. I have um, I, my financial planner. We met uh, on Wednesday. I put some. I put about sixty grand into investments to start putting away for you know starting to investing and you know doing different getting securities and bonds and stocks and, and, and mutual funds are starting to make some moves there. Right. I have a budget like a like a like a cash flow projection sheet that we created so I can understand you know what do I have this month. What is what's collected, what's confirmed, what's pursuing, what's dead, you know, all these things, right? And now I budget much, much better. I have a tax account. I have a personal checking account. I have a business checking account. I've got a, you know, investment account, right? I own money in my real, in my property and what I'm about to sell. So what I've done is now that I'm able to call my own shots, I'm able to really get back to the values that my dad and my brother and my grandparents instilled in me about how to be very conscientious with your money. So mm. I've been able to really, like I said, I mean, you, I mean, you can't buy a half million dollar plus home by yourself in this market with these interest rates if you don't have your S together. It's not going to happen. Mm. So mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate to get back to what I grew up on, and I'm mm. seeing now. I'm much, I much. I don't carry much credit card. Like I say, like the, really like the line of credit, right, Wes? Like the line of credit for me is not to take it and go blow it on dumb stuff. It's to, it's to have it as a backup to a backup if I ever need something. It's a two-year line of credit. It costs you $150 for the two years, and if you borrow off it, you pay back your principal. I don't know what the interest is yet. I see that first, and then go mm. from there. But it's not. It's not blow money. It's like it's backup to a backup to a back. It's actually a backup to a backup to a backup money. Because I never want to be caught in a situation with my business, right, Wes, where I don't have access to capital. You don't have access to capital in a business and you're an entrepreneur. You own it and you have people that work for you. That's not a good place to be in. Trust me, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about that because you said you're returning to it. You mentioned it after your divorce. Was there a stretch of time maybe in the decade before that where you got away from those principles? And what do you think it was that pulled you away from that? I know you, you've talked a lot about ego and you've talked a lot about you know, lack of accountability when we, when we chatted before. I think um, when, what, I, when, I was, when I was younger, Wes, in my late 20s, you know, I still had a little bit of you know, keeping with the Jones syndrome. I was making money through the business, but I still like to have like, the Hummer, the this, the that. And, and, and even today, I'm considering buying a Land Rover, right? But here's the thing, right? I'm considering it. But I already had the first asset that I want, which is my dream home. So that's checked, mm-hmm. right? Can I go out and afford to go get a, a, at least a, a, a Land Rover? I sure can. But does that mean I need to do it right now? It sure doesn't. 
right? So what I've learned is, is that when I was younger, looking back when after you asked that question, is that I was still trying to live, in my mind, the athlete look at times. Even though I wasn't an athlete, I was like 28. I was not in the NFL. I tried to look like it and act like it. And even when I was playing like indoor football, trying to like drive up to games and Hummers and look the part and all this type of stuff, I mean, I was really doing all that for show, right? Mm. For show. And in my home, it's interesting. I'm so excited about it. But I'm only going to show that off to people that mean something to me. It's not something where I'm looking for everybody to see it and have it. You know, I, I mean, I want people to take. I want people to see what I work for. I don't have anybody, mm-hmm. everybody in my home and all that type of stuff. And if you know me and your family, your friends, yes, you're welcome in my home anytime. But it's not like sure. the Marcus of old trying to show off what he had. Right? I put a picture right. up on social media to show people that when you go through a hard time, like I went through a really rough time last year with my divorce. If you work hard enough and smart enough, you can take care of what you want. But you have to be willing to get your elbows dirty, your hands dirty, and go after it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't lose the principles in my late 20s. I knew what to do. But when you're young and you're still trying to live that go to the club and park your car right in front of the door, all the girls can see you and you're like, hey, look at me. I've got a Hummer and I've got money in my pocket. Let me buy you a drink. Da, 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 da. You start getting away from what really matters. And so now I'm 42. I can have, I can have a nice car. Even if I get a Land Rover, I don't have to pull up to the front door of the club. I'm not going to the club anymore. Like It's for me. It's not for show. So when you do things for yourself and not for everybody else's approval, that's when you get back to the value system that you really should always never got away from. Mm, mm, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I think that's powerful. You know, what are the what are the things today that you think about? I think uh, you know, being in this stage of life that you're in after your divorce, single dad. I mean, it's to some degree similar to what you grew up with. I mean, what are the things that are, that are driving you today? Um, yeah, go ahead. Just that's a great question. What's driving me today is contribution or AKA legacy that I want to leave. Right. So for me right now, it's all about the legacy. It's all about what I want to be remembered by. So I spoke for NAFA. I'm sure you've heard of that, uh, West National Association of Investment and I'm sorry, of, I'm sorry, National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors. So I spoke at their big congressional conference in Washington, D.C. I was the closing keynote speaker on the importance of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. The talk went so well that now NAFA hired me again for their Apex East event in Tyson's Corner in October. Nate was trying to build a chapter here in the Raleigh area, which they're like, Mark, we want you to be our preferred speaker as we build up that chapter to help our members get going forward. Then I had a call with a great friend of mine who was at the conference, Omari Ayers, who used to work at Liberty Mutual Insurance. Now he works for NIA, National African American Insurance Association. And he said, Marcus, you're our guy for several conferences. He hired me for one that's going to be in Charlotte, looking at two others, one in Atlanta and one in Columbus, Ohio. He's going to put me on the preferred speaker list, right? So that's going to be awesome and fantastic. And then I was able to meet with somebody from Northwestern Mutual, and now we're on their radar about doing things for them on a large scale, on a large national level. And 
That's the type of legacy I want to leave because when I was speaking for NAFA in Washington, D.C., I went to the Lincoln Memorial and that was my first time going there looking and seeing the words and seeing the Gatesburg address and seeing the statue and all that. And I thought to myself, wow, I wonder if old Honest Abe knew the legacy he was going to leave as a result of what he did for the Union back in the 1860s. Now, unfortunately, it cost him his life, but he would have been gone long before now if he hadn't been shot. Right. Right. So all <laughs> that true. he did, right, his work, his contribution to the betterment of our country will never, ever be forgotten. And people from all across the world, if you ask people who was the most famous president, it's either, in my opinion, George Washington, who was the first or Abraham Lincoln. Like that's either, to me that's I don't when I think of most well-known presidents, it's either one or two. Right. So that's what I'm looking for. That's what's important to me right now is the legacy, right? You know, what will I be remembered for? A good guy, a guy that helped people, a guy that gave back to people, a guy that raised his daughters, you know. Like I said, I mean, my mm-hmm. stepdaughter, 19, I mean, you know, it's so hard. I mean, it's really hard now because you want to be there for them, and I am. But then also when you're getting your divorce and all that, and that's not your blood daughter, it sometimes can be a little bit dicey. So doing the best I can to navigate that. And so far, Ava and I are doing great. It's my stepdaughter. But it's hard because you just don't mm-hmm. know what she knows or what happened. And I don't get into details, but I wonder what she's aware of or knows. And so when that happens, right, you got to also look out because that's part of my legacy is how things go with her. But at the same time, you got to be very, very aware. So mm-hmm. to me, that's what I want. I want to have a contribution made or a legacy of somebody that could help people, would give his time, would help inspire people, and help anybody get from point A to point B. Mm, yeah, so important. I, how do you, how do you today kind of, I guess, protect yourself from your ego getting inflated by that? Because you're obviously seeing some success, and you are going to leave a legacy, right? And uh, I can tell that you're intent on that. But how, you know, how do you keep that from turning into an inflated ego. You know what, Wes? It's all about great team members around you that they know Mm. they can express themselves without fear of being judged and that they will never, ever allow you to have an inflated ego or distribute or exhibit, excuse me, bad behavior. Okay? Bad behavior and inflated egos are first cousins. Okay? So what I tell you all the time is if you want to be sure that your ego, which is usually the biggest silent killer of any business man or woman, have people around you that aren't afraid to talk to you, tell you the truth, be real with you. Because if you don't have that, then you risk people just always doing what? Being, Being subservient, feeding your ego, telling you how great you are. And if you keep getting told, I'm, you're great, you're great, you're great, to believe that, and again, nothing wrong with being great, but don't be so great that you don't want to listen, right? Don't let mm-hmm. confidence become egocentric. So, to answer your question more specifically, it's all about for me who I keep around me, and everybody around me knows if you have something to say, say it. There is no right answer, there is no wrong answer. It's all about hey, 
can we just have a conversation and go and move from there? Yeah, it's like that saying, you know, um, and I and I'm I don't know who to attribute it to. Uh, I've heard it's Oscar Wilde or it could be Kierkegaard, but uh, you know, best friends stab you in the front. <laughs> you know, they just they tell you the truth. Right? Yeah, and there I mean, yeah. you see don't, it coming. Don't stab, don't go a brute on me Caesar style. Hey, if you got a problem, <laughs> tell it to me. Be real yeah. because I can appreciate yeah. somebody that's real, right? Because if mm. you're real. That means that you are not talking about me behind my back because you're talking to me in front of my face. <laughs> and you know what? Mm-hmm. As a speaker, I remember doing a speech on DEI probably about four years ago, and it didn't go that great. That was you know, 2000, probably 19, 18, 19. When I spoke mm-hmm. for NAFA you know, in DC on May 22nd, 2023, there was a huge difference because this time I owned part of my story that wrapped around DEI between my dad, my construction company, my current business, and the reviews were absolutely awesome. That remember, Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean was, I'm I, curious. Yeah, I was talking about the importance of, you know, not living diversity, equity, inclusion through just talking about it. Just go do it, right? Find others that are qualified, qualified that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that don't have the same background as you do. Why? It increases your ability to solve problems, right? It makes you more conscientious. It makes you more community, you know, friendly. It, you know, but you got it, but it starts at the top, right? And again, like, look at our company, right, Wes? My business partner, female, white, late 40s. Albert does my trademark and patent, mid 40s, African-American. My website guy, George Saab, SEO, he's from Lebanon. My external manager, Ben, who does like my PR and outreach, he's full blood Vietnamese. My social media team, Paige, they're white. They should have about 12 people, all between the age of like 22 and 35, right? Mm-hmm. My bookkeeper, Jamie, is white female. Tom is my accountant who's, uh, who's Jewish. Bob Brady, who's my accountant, is white in his mid to late 60s. We have a super diverse equitable, inclusive environment. So again, I'm not out here talking about it. I'm actually out here living it. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about how it's important to do things and not look for anybody to approve them when you're the leader, right? So like if you're trying to change your culture and make it better, don't wait for your people to say, oh yeah, let's do that. That's okay. No, if you think it's right and you can prove your point, it's a measured smart decision-making process, go with it. Don't wait. Hesitation is going to set you back. Plain and simple. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm all about the right people. I'm all about qualifications and qualified people. But again, our staff is diverse because we wait to find super qualified people that are from different backgrounds and experiences. And we do that specifically because I want more experiences. I want more background. I want more, you know, just life wisdom to solve problems. So that's why I do it. I mean, you need to do it that way. But I'm going to tell you that's what works for us. We went from a struggling, mm-hmm. not getting paid very much, if anything, speaker, to now where we are on the circuit and we speak for a lot of people and people love our work. Like I was saying, if Northwestern Mutual 
ties in with us, right, Wes? That's going to be huge. Huge. Because they have so many branches, so many places. I mean, it's absolutely staggering. So, but again, right, Wes, I didn't get there overnight. I didn't get to say, hey, I'm a former NFL athlete. Hire me. Yay. That's what I used to do. That's why I got hired zero times for no pay, right? It's all about your ability to show you belong, right? So I thought that's what to me, that's what that's all about, about the diversity part. Yeah, like, I'm not going to hire you because you're black, you're white. I'm not going to hire you just for, just for a token hire. I'm going to hire you because you're the best of the best. When you do that, to me, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, and I, I know we only have a couple more minutes here, but one of the things that's coming to mind um, that I'd love to, it's jumping back, it's jumping back to your, to your NFL days uh, or your, your, your professional uh, football career, but it's the, it's the topic of, uh, you know, the, this whole name image likeness, NIL uh, stuff that's going on. And, you know, in many ways it's opened up opportunity for a lot of folks. And I've had an opportunity to speak with, uh, with some folks in that space. And, you know, the idea, the opportunity of creating uh, transgenerational wealth is something that is, is kind of a through line in all of those conversations. It's really an exciting thing for a lot of uh, student athletes to now have an opportunity to, to maybe create some wealth from, some, from, from what they're doing. Do you feel like in that space, whether it was preparing you to where you're playing college ball and preparing to go on to the, to the uh, NFL or in the NFL, that you had folks who were advising you or giving you what you needed from an accountability team advice standpoint? Uh, or did you have to find that on your own? No, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So NIL is great and it gives me an opportunity. But at the same time, like you mentioned earlier, you have to get educated on it and you need to use that education to help build life mm-hmm. for yourself after. Right? As long as these young athletes, they're making money. I'm all for that. Understand taxes, implications, how to manage their money, how to put things away. It's going to be great, right? So again, I think nil will help a lot of people. It's going to shake up the sports world. It's going to make it where it's not this, this everybody going to Alabama, Georgia, you know, I mean, it's going to open up the playing field. But again, as long as these athletes understand how to utilize the money, how to put into that, into that retrospect, then we got something cooking. So as, as long as, you know, so I think it's great to make money for the athletes, but at the same time, you make sure they're trained and they have education on how to not just make money, but keep their money. Because you're in, in your experience, that wasn't there from what I gather, right? The education, the advice, the... Okay. Is that right? Oh, I mean, no, I mean, no, I mean, not like that. No, I was in college and all that. No, we weren't talk, We were not talking about that. When I got to the NFL, they talked about it. But in high school and college, no, that was never talked about. Mm. Yeah, interesting. It's interesting. Well, um, you know, again, maybe there's an opportunity there for you to, to speak. There's an audience. I mean, certainly folks in our world are listening to you and, and that, that would seem like a, a natural audience for you as well. Um, well, Marcus, Hey, listen, thank you again so much. Uh, congratulations to you on your success and the new house and excited for, you know, what's to come with these, the doors that are opening for you and appreciate you coming back. Wow. Uh, thanks a lot, Wes. I enjoyed it, man. Thanks for having me on. And uh, again, uh, appreciate you uh, having me back. Thanks for listening to Analog Advisor. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Have an idea about an ideal guest? 
email us at hello at analogadvisor.com. Today's content was created by our host, Wes Brown. The show was produced and edited by Anthony Palmer and is part of the Palm Tree Podco Network. Network.